Frank is taking too many chances. Oh, he'll be all right. Won't he, Al? He'll be all right if he takes to heart what I told him about signs. Welcome to Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and I have a news report for you. In a Mexican bank is lodged the sum of $300,000, payable to bearer, which belongs to me. Thus the swindler writes to his victims, and the government, as well as the foreign minister and consuls, are flooded with inquiries. The letter is from Madrid, and contains all the well-worn allurements designed to trap the unwary. There is a usual daughter who needs care, the portmanteau containing the secret and three checks necessary to recover the amount from the bank. As the writer is in jail and cannot receive correspondence, the reply is to be sent by cable to a person of my entire confidence. It's needless to explain that the notice of the arrest of the banker is a fake, and is for the purpose of deceiving the unwary. That this business is profitable is demonstrated by the fact that it appears to be flourishing year after year. And this too, despite repeated exposures. This report appeared in the Evening Statesman, published on March 20, 1906. So 115 years later, advanced fee fraud and other social engineering tricks still seem to be flourishing, despite repeated exposures. Maybe we haven't found the right answer because we haven't been asking the right questions. Our guest this episode has been asking some fascinating questions. Dr. Alyssa Redmiles is a faculty member and research group leader of the Safety and Society Group at the Max Planck Institute for Software Systems. She's been doing some great work looking at decision-making, inequity, education, and advice for digital security. So I wanted to ask her some of the great questions she's been posing. But first, I wanted to know if there was a piece of advice or a moment that centered on this particular research path. A great question. Um, no, it wasn't a piece of advice. Uh, it was maybe a, a combination of things. So I got my undergrad degree in computer science, um, and I did work as a software engineer for a little bit, um, and realized that I really was more interested in things related to humans um, and in the corporate world. That led to my boss being like, "Oh, you should try marketing." Um, and so I was a marketing manager for IBM for a little while, um, and. I really liked that, but I missed um, being able to ask research questions like I'd been able to do when I was doing my undergraduate studies. Um, and so I just sort of, you know, accidentally ended up getting a PhD would be my best answer. Like my um, research advisor from when I was in undergraduate studies reached out a few times and said, hey, do you want to come back for a PhD? Do you want to come back for a PhD? Uh, and he did math theory. And I was like, no, I don't want to do math. I want to do people. And he finally like emailed me and said, hey, we hired this people person. Um, you should come back and you should work with them. And uh, that's basically what I did. Um, and that person ended up being my PhD advisor. And she had done a lot of work on passwords. And I had always been sort of interested in learning, in education, and also in like equity, like are different people getting access to, to the same resources in the same or equal or equi equitable ways. And so security advice, you know, felt like it was an unexplored topic. It was something we were both interested in looking at. And it was something that for me just really hit home because I was like, well, you really have no chance of getting to behave securely 
if you're not getting good advice, right? And so I just got very interested in like, how do people learn this stuff? Are different people getting different ways to learn? Is the advice any good? Like, are we setting people up for success? Because we keep going, hey, why don't they behave securely? Why don't they behave securely? And to me, one of the, you know, one of the starting points for answering that question was, well, hey, what are we telling them to do? So what are we telling them? Is is our security <laughs> advice useless or, or are we doing it wrong? There's a little bit of both. I would say, you know, we're telling them a lot. We're telling them tons and tons of things. Uh, we did some measurement work where we, you know, looked at thousands of articles of security advice on the internet. And there are about 500 um, different unique pieces of advice that we're giving people. And that's a lot of advice. And even when we ask, you know, experts to try to prioritize it, they struggle to prioritize it. When we ask sort of regular internet users, they struggle to prioritize it. So, you know, is our advice useless? Not necessarily. People do listen to it, but we're giving so much of it and without any prioritization that people are kind of making their own decisions about what's most important, uh, which doesn't always lead to them behaving in the ways we think are most safe. Um, and additionally, we, we've changed the advice a lot, right? So for a while, it was never write down your passwords and you have to change your passwords super often. And then we learned, no, actually, if we make people change their passwords frequently, it makes those passwords less secure every time they change them because they're trying to come up with something they can remember. So we got rid of the changing your password advice. And we realized that not writing down your password was really only relevant if your threat model is that someone's going to break into wherever you store those written down passwords and steal them, which for the average person is probably not taking place at a corporation, maybe, but for the average person, not necessarily. And so especially for like older adults or those who have like memory difficulties, writing your password down is a much better solution than say just using one password on all the websites. Um, so the other problem is not just do we have too much advice that we're giving people, but we've changed it a lot. So it takes a while to propagate to them. And it also erodes some trust every time we have to re-update things. Yeah, I guess it's like if someone gave me IKEA furniture and a list of 500 simple things that I needed to know in order to put it together, I, I'm pretty sure I w it would never get out of the flat pack box. Exactly. So how do we how do we move Bought from here? Like, do we just need to cut it down to the BuzzFeed list of 10 things or do we need to personalize it? Your question, does one size fit all for cybersecurity advice? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think the answer is sort of both. Um, so I think personalization and per by personalization, you know, I don't necessarily mean we're going to get a machine learning algorithm that delivers like specific advice to you, you know, Michael specifically, but advice that is more tailored both to someone's threat model, right? So like if I'm an activist in a country with government surveillance versus kind of an average internet user, the advice that I need to stay safe is going to be different. Or if I'm someone who has like a big social media following and maybe I'm otherwise an average internet user, again, I need kind of different advice or I might have different prioritization. So um, I think there's prioritization along the line of threat model. There's also prioritization along the lines of account portfolios. So people have many online accounts these days, right? 
And if we think about how most websites do security, each individual website says, hey, I want you to have a strong password. I want you to have two-factor authentication. I want you to have all this stuff on my website. But you may not value that website that much, especially in comparison to other websites in your portfolio that you have accounts on. Um, and so I would love to see a world in which we have some personalization where you know, users can almost kind of negotiate with their portfolio of platforms to say, hey, here are my top five websites that I really care about. And the system could say, okay, well, these other ones have like connected credentials, so we have to care about these too. All right, those are the ones we're going to protect the most. And these other websites, like we're just not going to protect them that well in terms of your account. But it also means, you know, here you sign this waiver and you can't go after those websites or, or yell about it on the internet if something happens because part of that was kind of on you. Right. And so there's some personalization on the level of respecting the fact that people have, you know, a compliance budget for their security. This is something raised by a Butement paper in 2009 that there's this idea of compliance budgets, which is basically like we only have so much time for, for security. So I think there's personalization in terms of threat model as well as in terms of sort of portfolio, which might be at a level of like individual users. I've often wondered whether, you know, those list of the most common passwords, I've often wondered whether the ones at the top of the list are because people have throwaway accounts and they mm -hmm. use crappy passwords on sites that they think have crappy security and they're right. So those, those sites get breached more often. Uh, they don't lose their good passwords. They only lose password or one, two, three, four, but then those sites end up making up the bulk of the, the compromised password lists. And then we, we end up with the same list every year, but it's not necessarily because people are doing a bad job. It's because they're doing a good job. Yes. I, Definitely hold the same hypothesis, and we're actually in the midst of um, trying to start some experiments to basically answer that exact question. So a colleague of mine, uh, Cormac Hurley, has done some um, kind of theoretical writing on, you know, why people might, why it might not be sort of cost effective for them to spend time on security. And this is something we've thought for a while is like, well, it makes tons of sense to use sort of nonsense passwords on your low value accounts because you'll be able to remember them and you don't really care if someone gets into them. And maybe you didn't even want an account, right, to access that content in the first place, but they forced you to have one. So here we are. So people might be smarter than we're giving them credit for. <laughs> yes, that is my general, like the findings of a lot of my research, actually, I bet that people are smarter than we give them credit for. And that as technologists, and I think this is sometimes hard, especially as, as security technologists, sometimes we're inclined to think like, oh, we have the right answer or we're the experts. So we should sort of impose our like normative view of what the best practice is. But there's a lot of value to taking more of a descriptive approach where we, you know, observe users, we model them, and then we learn from that behavior, how to make our systems work for people instead of trying to kind of manipulate or change people into working for the systems or the rules we've created. These smart people, how, how smart are they, I guess, is the question. And, and, and your question again here, dancing pigs or externalities, or, or, or do people actually make rational security decisions? To answer this question, um, we conducted a bunch of behavioral economic style experiments. Um, so basically, I built an online system where 
uh, crowd workers, so people who do online tasks for a small amount of money and they take a lot of like research surveys, um, these folks could make a bank account in our system and it held um, their actual study compensation. And they were told some risk that their account was going to be hacked. Um, and this was actually the true risk. Like I used a random number generator um, to, to have this, this risk be instantiated. And if their account was hacked, then they didn't get paid for the study. Um, and they had an option to protect their account with two-factor authentication. And they were told how much two-factor authentication would reduce their chance of being hacked. Um, so basically, unlike the real world, where sort of you have some account and maybe you have some perception of its risk of being hacked, but no one actually tells you. And then they offer you security behaviors and you have some perception of how much they protect things. But again, you know, you don't really know. Um, here, we, we made those numbers concrete. And the reason we did that is we wanted to see, you know, if people had the full set of possible information, were they going to make sort of rational choices in terms of if we know how much they get paid per hour and how long it takes them to do two-factor, you know, are they going to uh, choose to do two-factor only when it mitigates more risk than the cost in terms of their time? And that's what economists would call like a rational choice. And what we find is that the first time we have people do this and they do it for like five days, so they have to keep signing into the account and doing two-factor. The first time we do it, about half of them behave like strictly rationally. So like if I, I took a paper and a pencil and I computed whether they made the right choice, about half of them did. And the second time they, they do this, so if they do it for five days, they go away and then we say, hey, surprise, we want you to do it again. And we give them a new set of you know, risks and protection about 60% of them are rational the next time. So they're not like making completely random choices, but they're not perfectly rational. But when we build um, a model, like a logistic regression model to predict whether or not they're going to enable two-factor, uh, what we see is that we can model their behavior very well. So we can predict their behavior with far better accuracy than we can predict like other consumer behaviors, like supermarket shopping, things like that as a function of five factors. Um, and those factors are the risk and the protection values we told them about, the value of the account, so how much money we gave them, whether they typically do two-factor authentication, so sort of an anchoring effect, people really like to stick with what they've done before, and the cost, so like how long it takes them to log into the account, which strongly correlates with how long it'll take them to do two-factor authentication. Um, and this is where we get into sort of a final piece of the last question you asked, which was about personalizing things. So what we were sort of surprised to see is that there's pretty wide variance in how long it takes people to enable two-factor authentication. And as a result, the cost of doing a security behavior can vary widely. So the protection is the same, regardless of whether you're sort of slow or fast or two-factor, but the cost varies. And so what we saw was that people who had lower internet skill, um, which is correlated with being lower socioeconomic status, were less likely to enable two-factor, not necessarily because they were being irrational about it, but because it would cost them more in terms of time to do so. And so this is a place where you know, we're starting to do some work to see whether platforms could personalize which security behaviors they ask people to do so that, you know, higher skilled users potentially get asked to do two-factor, but lower skilled users 
either get like a YubiKey to make it faster or get prompted to do like a different secure behavior um, that isn't so inequitable for them. That's really interesting that there's sort of a difference around abilities. Yeah. Do you think that maps to society in any way? And and again, one of your questions, where is the digital divide? Yes, absolutely. Um, so this has been a big uh, research question that I've been working on for quite a while, which is, are there differences between groups of users? Um, and if so, like, how best can we characterize those groups? And initially, I started looking at this from the perspective of you know, traditional socio-demographics, so gender, age, income, educational attainment. But what I've discovered over the years um, is that internet skill, uh, which is a construct that communications and sociology scholars have created, you know, validated measures for and is sort of a robust, you know, construct in that literature, um, which really speaks to like people's ability to do different kinds of general tasks online. Internet skill is a much more meaningful variable in terms of characterizing differences between groups with regard to security, behavior, and outcomes than socio-demographics. Um, and so we've done some various different types of work to, to prove this. But the thing that's sort of interesting about that is that while there are general socio-demographic correlates with internet skill, a lot of times we might find in security studies not the, the demographic patterns we'd expect, right? It's not that older users are necessarily doing less behaviors, or it's not that uh, lower socioeconomic status users are having more negative outcomes, which is what a lot of security researchers maybe assume initially. But once we start to look at internet skill, we see a really consistent correlation between uh, behavior and general internet skill. I've heard a little bit of talk about sort of the, the next billion internet users. And in, in Canada, they're pushing probably as a result of the, the increased need due to social isolation and the pandemic to um, have greater broadband coverage across Canada. And I, I assume that this is something that's being considered in other places as well as developing countries building out infrastructure to have more people come online. Is there a way that we can enable the these people who are coming onto the internet who may not have those capacities? Is there a good way to move forward on making sure that these people who are now going to be accessible through having a greater access to the internet will have the the skills or the, the, the internet skills, the digital literacy, as well as the security skills that are required to safely use the internet? Ah, this is a very good question. Um... And one that, one that I think about often, but I haven't found an answer to yet, because, you know, I, I so agree with the premise of the question, which is we've gone through, I don't know, 20 years, let's say, of, you know, bumbling around trying to figure out what the right answer is, not just to security, right, but just to general, like, safety on the Internet, privacy, security, harassment, etc. And you know, it would be marvelous if we could take those learnings and not have others have to go through the same painful learning process. You know, in terms of how to do that, there's sort of an interesting question, right? Because if internet skill is strongly related to your ability to do these security behaviors, if I if I swoop in and I say, oh, you know, we've figured out that the, the best way to deal with things is to have a password manager. Well, a password manager is something that 
lower skill, you know, internet users struggle with. And so if you're new to the internet, of course, your internet skills are not as developed yet. So that may not be super helpful, but I also don't want people to be in the situation where like part of the difficulty of using a password manager is having to move all of your legacy passwords over into the password manager. And so you kind of end up in this catch 22. Um, And so something certainly on my like things I hope that I will get to work on in the next five years um, list is, you know, how could we teach people internet skill like efficiently as they're coming on to the internet in such a way that it would help them with safety as well as with getting, you know, social capital and economic capital and all of the, the potential value out of the internet faster than when we just kind of leave people to their own devices, so to speak. Some of the work that you you have done sort of showed some things that people might not expect about cybersecurity advice. And, and I'm thinking here particularly that people would accept digital security advice because they trust the source of the advice rather than the content of the advice. And they might reject advice because of the source of the advice if it seems too much like marketing material or there's a cost attached to it or something. They feel like they're being tricked and sold something perhaps. So is there there much that we can take from who is giving the message and how it's being presented that could aid us in, in presenting better well, more actionable, let's say, more motivating security uh, tips and education? Yeah, this is an interesting question. So at one point I had tried uh, doing like entertainment education uh, videos um, for security advice, a little similar to like the road safety or sexual health videos that you would see. And, you know, one of the trouble with doing these kinds of things in an academic setting is Sometimes um, it's hard to evaluate the impact of like a different form of education when you have sort of a one shot or two shot test in academia. Um, And so we had tried it and we got sort of inconclusive results as to whether like that kind of that kind of media would be helpful. You know, one other approach that uh, Julie Hanley, who's another uh, cybersecurity researcher, has taken is thinking about like cybersecurity advocates within communities. Um, And I really like this idea because one of the things that we sort of saw in our research on security learning was that, um, especially in uh, lower socioeconomic status communities, people had sort of a go-to person. And they said, yeah, you know, Fred or Jane over there, you know, she is an IT person and she helps like the whole neighborhood do some of their security. And having kind of one trusted person where people can can go to and know that they're getting good advice really reduces the cognitive load and also, you know, in a way shifts the, you know, filtering through the hundreds of pieces of security advice onto that one advocate. And so I think to some degree, if we could train those advocates um, to be able to give good advice for their community, for their particular setting, that might be like the most efficient method toward giving people advice that they will trust. In terms of the marketing piece, I think, you know, mainly what we found in in sort of multiple studies was if you are a vendor of security products, it's really much better to separate the, you know, content or blog posts where you're trying to give people just general advice from anything where you're saying, and you can buy our antivirus software. Because once you do that, they've thrown out everything else you said, even if it was you know, good advice. Well, I'm not going to, to go to a big box store to get security advice anymore. That's a, that's a, <laughs> a, 
a good tip. Let's think about the experts. And, and in, in some of your research, you found that the, the experts you surveyed perceived that nearly 90% of the hundreds of behaviors were effective. And they identified 118 pieces of advice as being in the top five. Do we give up on, on having a top 10 list or a top five list? Is there a way that we can go forward or, or should we move away from the way that we're even thinking about giving advice in, so, in, in terms of a, a list of tips? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I think, to be fair to security experts, part of the reason it's so hard to narrow down on a top list of advice is that we don't have a lot of measurement of how effective this advice is. So, for example, uh, if someone asks me, you know, how how much does two-factor authentication reduce the risk of my bank account being hacked? Most corporations, um, most security researchers couldn't give you an answer, even really a range to that question. And part of it is, well, it prevents these specific attacks and we don't always know for sure when someone's account has been hacked until they tell us things. And like bank accounts maybe have the most uh, visibility into this, but like social media accounts, email accounts, they don't necessarily know because they don't necessarily get reports from users. Hey, I've been hacked. Maybe they do, but not always. So we have very few statistics. And so I think this is something that is really critical because we need to know, you know, how, how effective are these behaviors in order to get to a top 10 list. And I don't think we're going to be able to have as stable as a top 10 list as like physical security does. But even if we had one we could update every three years, that would be a vast improvement from these hundreds of pieces of advice that both end users and experts are sort of expected to somehow, you know, figure out what they should be doing. And that measurement really requires a sort of more, even more focus on measurement by researchers where we don't just say, hey, here's a new behavior that prevents an attack, but we sort of set the barrier of proof to be like, okay, how, how likely is that attack and how preventative is this behavior? And doing that also requires some you know, cooperation or collaboration with corporations to really dig into you know, what is the frequency of attacks and how much um, do behaviors mitigate those attacks. And it's sometimes hard for corporations to want to share that information because they're afraid people go, People get compromised on your platform, but without that information, it's really hard for us to kind of move forward. Yeah, I think you make a good point there. I mean, some of the the more common top 10 lists that I see around now have come from uh, sources, uh, for example, the, the, the DSD, the Digital Signals Directorate in Australia, and their justification for that list is classified, untransparent, Yeah. good, good reasons, but reasons we can't tell you. And, and that makes it really hard to, to compare it against other lists because the, the reasons are, are clouded in, in mystery, which doesn't sound very scientific if we're going to be clear about it. That's magic and it's nearly, nearly snake oil. So science is the answer, basically. <laughs> yes, and perhaps that's just because I'm a scientist, but that would be my, <laughs> that would be my belief. Or data is the answer, but science and data. Yeah, and I, I want to make clear that I'm not saying that these things aren't correct or that the security community isn't giving out good advice or that they don't have good reasons for it. It's just, it would be easier to compare if the methods behind deciding on such advice was a little bit clearer. Yes, exactly. 
So what's next? Where where do you go from here? Like the the last thing that you did, as at least as far as I I read it, was a, a wonderful review of all of this all of the security advice that's available on the internet, and it's a mind numbing read in in terms of uh, how much is out there and and how confusing the whole thing is. But where do you want to go from here? What's the, what's the next big question that you want to ask? I'm currently in the midst of asking the following question, which is. Typically, when we think about why don't people behave securely, we kind of jump to maybe they don't know about it, so that's education, um, or maybe it's hard to use, which is usability. Um, and as I've done this work, it's become increasingly clear to me that I think there are a number of steps kind of earlier on the decision tree before we even get to thinking about behaviors. And those steps, I would say, are first, do people even think that they have control over whether or not their account gets hacked. Two, if they think they have control, do they think the risk that their account gets hacked is large enough to worry about? So if I think the risk that my account is going to be hacked is the same as like the risk that I'll get murdered in the next year, I don't do a whole lot to prevent getting murdered. So I'm probably not particularly inclined to do a lot to prevent that cyber risk. And then three, if I think I have control over the risk and the risk is large enough for me to care about. How much do I value the particular account that I'm being asked to protect? And is the sort of risk times value enough to be something that I'm going to, to care to even think about behaviors for, right? So if I value this account, let's be economists here. If I value the account, you know, $5 and I think it's risk of being hacked is one out of a hundred. I'm probably not going to bother protecting, you know, five cents per year, right? But if I value the account $5,000, then maybe I am willing to uh, protect $50 a year with some set of behaviors. And then we get to, do I know about the behaviors and are they usable? Um, so currently I'm working with some collaborators at Microsoft Research to try to measure each of the steps in, in this branch and to actually measure the real risk of people falling for different kinds of cyber incidents so we can check you know are people's perceptions of cyber risk wrong for lack of a better term or are they sort of correct in which case if they say hey i don't really value this account and here is my perception of the risk which is within the range that it might be you know it's kind of my choice if i want to protect it that's a really different narrative than oh, hey, people don't know how to protect their accounts or they can't protect their accounts, but they would if they knew or they could. And increasingly, it seems like that's really not the case. So let's try to figure out like what is the rationality behind that and is it reasonable? That's wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for your, for your time and um, keep on doing what you're doing. Thanks. Thanks for having me. A big thanks to Dr. Red Miles for a really interesting interview. If I could leave you with one piece of advice... It would be to seek more advice than you give. This has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only made possible by the kind guests sharing their time and their research. If you have a question or comment, you can reach me at, at Cybercrimeology on Twitter or by old fashioned email at Cybercrimeology at gmail.com. Who do you think of the word? I wish we could send them all to school.